don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit, like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 21. And today we're doing Anthropocene's auteur theory number three, talking about the Katsi trilogy, directed by Godfrey Reggio. Is that how you pronounce that? I think so. Reggio, Reggio. Uh, so that's the trilogy that consists of these three movies I'm going to mispronounce. Uh, Koya Niskatsi, uh, Life Out of Balance from 1982. Poa Katsi, Life and Transformation from 1988. Uh, Nokoi Katsi, Life as Warrior from 2002. All three of them scored by Philip Glass, which is a big deal that I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, many points throughout and my main point is that the music is good yeah, that's yeah, really that's yeah. about my depth of understanding of a th- you know, uh, theory of film composition yeah so that's and I, I mostly agree there are a couple points where I thought it was maybe not the greatest but for the most part it, it sounds very 80s the 82 and 88 the first two um, has a lot of like weird synthesizers yeah synthesizers um, and they totally ripped off uh Pawakatsi totally ripped off the Truman Show <laughs> yeah so uh Philip Glass scored these but he's also scored you know a billion other things one of those is the Truman Show and in the Truman Show he reuses reused four older pieces from different movies and one of them uh, is in Pawakatsi Anthem um, I believe it's called yeah he also did like The Hours Notes on a Scandal um Mishima a life in four chapters which was directed by paul schrader, paul schrader yeah that's got a, a badass yeah. criterion edition it's that's on my after seeing this that's definitely on my list to see next uh as is i wrote it down here and now i'm not gonna be able to find it uh anima mundi from 1992 which is also godfrey reggio and uh philip glass and it's more of like a nature animal focused hmm but it's it's the similar kind of film, so it's you know not really narrative. It uses a lot of the same camera techniques and all that stuff. He's he's done one. I was just listening to an interview with him. He's done one in the last couple of years. I think it was called Visions. I could that could be wrong, but it's a. He was talking about it. And he said it's compared to the three hundred and eighty four cuts in Koyaanisqatsi and the four hundred and eighty four cuts in. Uh, Pawakatsi, this his new one has 74 cuts and he says it's like meant to be like a challenge to the viewer um, he sort of compared it to trying to quit smoking um, <laughs> so I think it's a further experimentation um, but uh, I don't that's just the extent I know about it yeah um, so you know he's been around done a lot of stuff and like you said in these films uh, a lot of cuts a lot of footage i imagine a lot of years have to be of work went into all three of these um and it, it kind of made me think about the technology and how it evolved over the course of making these because the first one's in 1982 and you can kind of tell that they're getting shots that for the time are amazing but now with like drones and like even like a GoPro camera, you can do a lot of that right. stuff. It, it, the stuff you see in Koyaanisqatsi is the stuff of commercials now. Yeah. It's like film school stuff. 
that, mm-hmm. that people do. Like there's a scene where he has the camera on a like a conveyor belt in a factory. Maybe it's the Twinkie factory and it's sort of going down the line. And another cool shot is when he has the camera on a on an elevator and somehow they've kept the higher floor elevator doors open. So it gives that illusion, you know, you see in movies sometimes where it's clearly a set and like the camera pans up and it can only see because that fourth wall is removed and there's not really a wall. But this, uh, in that shot, there really is a wall. It's just open because it's the uh, uh, elevator door. Anyway, it was interesting. Yeah. They, We're going to say interesting <laughs> as many times as we can tonight. And there are a ton of shots like that. I mean, just the opening of Koyaniskati where he's, they're in like Monument Valley and they're going around all these giant rock structures. Um, I imagine those are done with helicopters. I don't know how else they would have done it in the early 80s. Uh, but now you can just you know fly a drone around and get mm. get similar shots. Um, Strap it to a bald eagle. Yeah, that's how they did it. It's a very patriotic film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I guess we could just jump in and start talking about the first one, which is, I think, the most well-known one, probably just because it's it's got a sort of a cult status. Yeah, it's it's mentioned in The Simpsons at least a couple of times. Like uh, I said, I I think I heard of it. There's a reference to it in The Circle, which I just now fully get the fullness of that reference in The Circle, which is about quantification and uh, encroaching technology. And in The Circle, it's it's described as a uh, – there's a viewing of Koyaniskatsi for free on the campus of The Circle, which is like a sort of Google campus. And so – the irony is abundant there. Uh, so last week when I was kind of introducing these and when people talk about them, they're usually referred to as non-narrative films. Uh, but I, I made a note about half an hour into Koya, Koya Niskati uh, where I wrote, I called them non-narrative, but are they really? And, because when you watch them, even though there's not... You know, it's not a, there's no real protagonist. There's no real A to B kind of plot you can follow, but there is a message that's trying to be conveyed there. And there are villains, it seems. Yeah. And so the, the narrative, if you want to call it that, even though that's, you know, there's a lot of problems with calling it that the narrative that comes through is pretty heavy handed once you notice it's there. So at the beginning of Koinaskatsi, you have all this natural imagery and the music sort of suggests this kind of majesty and, and almost well, like the a very first shot you have is of a rocket launch a rocket and then launch, it yeah. cuts to and then it cuts to, yeah. to all the, the sort of natural imagery and then sort of slowly humanity starts to kind of intrude a little bit at mm-hmm. first it's through like farming equipment is how you see or not even farming equipment but just sort of machinery in general and then humans start popping up here and there and then eventually it's all you know swarm of humanity inside of a city and all that kind of stuff right i think i was reading the uh essay by bill mckibben that's included with the wonderful uh criterion edition of this trilogy that i got a couple weeks ago Uh, and he basically he refers to the narrative as geologic you know it's this geological scale of a narrative Uh, and it's not in, in a weird way it sort of reminds me of the sort of subtextual narrative of Mother, uh, 
uh, where it is this sort of incremental violence uh, to the to the earth, and you see the different eras, you know, one by one, uh, further harming the world. Yeah, and it's funny you mention that because I, I put in my notes. I took a lot of notes on these films just because I was afraid. <laughs> we were both afraid <laughs> we were, like, we were oh, not no. going to have anything to say because no one says anything in these yeah. movies. But I actually made a note that as far as the films that we've done so far, this is one of the easier ones to follow, weirdly, if that makes sense. Like you you in the movie and you have no real ambiguity about what the message is. Um, so I think in that way, it's a little bit easier to follow than something like Mother which because Mother is so sort of awash in all of these references and allusions to other things can make it a little bit difficult to piece it all back together. But in this, you're left with just the images and, and just these visuals that you're getting. And so in that way, you're able to piece together at least a central kind of theme or message that, that kind of holds it all together, which ends up being, you know, human society is kind of at a crossroads or I guess is sort of sick. In and, some kind of way. And another, you know, Chintzy and I watched this and, and talked about it quite a bit um, because there's something a little pretentious uh, at first glance just about the existence of these movies. Um, if your frame of reference is just, you know, narrative kind of Hollywood or even independent narrative film. Um, but in a way... It's more honest because a, a Darren Aronofsky film, for instance, can be a an entertainment if you look at Noah or something. And obviously there's commentary in there, but, but there's no ambiguity, like you're saying. There's no ambiguity about what these are. No one goes into this with the ability to mistake it for entertainment. And that, you know, we sort of talked about the with Ferngully, I think we talked about the anesthetic of canonization and familiarity, and that's a children's movie. You can you can dismiss it as entertainment. No one's dismissing this as entertainment. It's I think it's entertaining. It's captivating, certainly. Uh, but just because it is a non, you know, like you said, you just sort of problematize that phrase non-narrative because it's not a traditional narrative film. Uh, you do not have the ability to duck behind that, you know, categorization of entertainment. It's harmless. It's just a movie. No, this is clearly somebody trying to tell you something. Yeah. And I would definitely agree with that. Um, and I just I had a point that I noticed that I was super proud of. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to explain it now. So we begin the film with the, and it's this is the same image you get on the cover of the excellent Criterion Collection uh, edition, which is the cave drawing. I was I, I meant to like bring this up and ask you if you had any thoughts about this. So please proceed. Oh well, it's not about that specifically, but that that comes into it. So you, you open on that image, and then you have the the chant that we've both probably been doing all day. It was the and you know that repeats over and over again it's kind of primordial kind of gregorian almost chant and then the music continues throughout the rest of it and then once humanity shows up with our big machines and everything you sort of get more intrusion of human voices throughout it so once humanity is in it in a kind of full-blown way that's when you start getting all this really great choral music 
And specifically, I'm thinking about the scene where you have the airplane, the kind of jet airliner, giant plane, taxiing down the runway for a long yep. time. And yep. you have the choral music behind it. Like, ah. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds better than that. And so you, <laughs> and then you get slightly. like images of the, the highway and stuff like that. Um, you get this also this kind of contrast between the flower fields that you're flying over toward the beginning where you, you sort of, which is one of my favorite shots in the whole thing where you, you're in like a solid block of yellow and then you hit a different color and you just kind of, kind of keep flying mm-hmm. over them. And then we get a similar shot with parking lots and different colors of cars later on going on. So there's, there's a definite sort of contrast going on between the human world and the natural world, which is a, a dichotomy that I think is kind of a false dichotomy sort of only exists because we impose it upon ourselves. Um, but I just kind of noticed that the music as humanity comes in, you get more of like a voice a to human it voice, yeah. as opposed to just this kind of, uh, what can be at times kind of a primal sort of music going on. Right. Similar kind of things happen in the, the next film, but in a different sort of I way. I was really surprised to hear the word Koyaanisqatsi in the music. Did, did I, that I take was, you kind of by surprise? It was sort of weird. I kind of, at first, I was like, oh man, I hope this isn't going to be corny. But then it, it kind of gets stuck in your head after a while, and you're like, oh. Well, I, I really... I cannot recommend highly enough this interview sort of changed my whole perspective on shit. I watched with uh, Godfrey Reggio. I I believe it's on CivilNet or Civil.net or something like that. It's on YouTube. It's one of the first uh, results if you just YouTube um, Godfrey Reggio interview. Uh, And he's talking about, first of all, he was a monk. (laughs) Um, for 14 years where and he was fasting for 14 years he was rarely speaking uh, and he was working almost exclusively with uh, the poor so he and Toller would have got along yes this guy's the real fucking deal <laughs> um, anyway he, he said he says long ago I gave up on language or or I, or I threw out language when I decided to make this film uh, he so he was living in this sort of uh, brotherhood I guess he calls it it's not necessarily a monastery uh, and someone shows him a Bunuel film The Young and the Damned and it changes his life he says it's the true religion or whatever and <laughs> or whatever <laughs> or whatever he says um uh, <clears throat> Anyway, he, he says he, you know, he got into filmmaking and he, he gave up on language and he thinks that languages now do not describe the real world. They're so sort of caught up in particular cultural moments and impacted by cultural moments that they have ceased to describe the real world so he's given up on language and he turns he says to the Hopi language because he calls it a a language of orality and in a lot of ways a more sophisticated language because it has words that can express meanings like life out of balance or life as war uh, and so he, he talked about the phrase a picture is worth a thousand words and he said he wanted to do the opposite he said he wanted to give us a thousand pictures in service of one word, Koyaanisqatsi. Uh, 
And that's really interesting. And, and it made me want to take another look at Gauche and his thoughts that we referred to, I think, last week about show, don't tell mm-hmm. and orality and and how that's sort of a an invention of modernity. Show, don't tell is kind of a, a modernist in literature is sort of modernist thing. Yeah. And, the, uh, and it also kind of comes up when you have uh, narratives by non-Western writers or by Native American writers or whatever, when they say, well, you know, it comes from an oral tradition. It's a different, and they use that to sort of say, well, why doesn't this line up with our idea of what a written narrative or like a novel should be? They're like, oh, well, it's influenced by the oral tradition, which is sort of ignorant in a lot of ways, because right, what, right. what kind of storytelling isn't influenced by an oral history? And a history of oral narrative, right? And, and so the thought that he's that Reggio sort of gave me in that interview was that show don't tell the advice you always hear given to writers is like only necessary in a culture whose language is like degraded to where you can't say what you mean, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it it makes me think that the the popularity and ubiquity of film now is almost symptomatic of that language problem it's like it's like we realize we can't say what we mean with the words we have because as he as reggio says it's it's been caught up and and degraded in some measure and so and so we we turn to images to try to kind of break through that that moment and of course obviously some films are very much most films are very much caught up in that same degradation that he's talking about 98 percent of movies i would say are you know caught up in that um but but some of them aren't and uh anyway i I thought that was really interesting especially what he said about the hopi language being a language of orality and and needing a thousand images to just to start to communicate one Hopi word. Yeah. And that kind of lines up, well, it lines up in a way with this uh, interview that I was telling you about before we started, which is from, you know, to keep plugging their stuff, the Criterion uh, channel, I guess, is where this we officially endorse all things Criterion. <laughs> yeah. It's a great thing. Buy all things from criteria. You, you sort of sounded like Trump for a second. You're like, it's a great thing. Everyone, everyone says criteria. Huge. We love it. Uh, so, it's a series called Under the Influence, where they talk to directors about their influences. And this was with the director Ramel Ross, who is best known for a documentary called Hale County This Morning, This Evening, which was nominated for the Oscar for Best Documentary. It's about it's a similar sort of project, but a little bit more narrative, and it's about the lives of these these uh, this African American community in Hale County, Alabama. And so he's talking about uh, this trilogy, and he had a lot of really good insights on it that uh, I was kind of hadn't been able to put in such strong language. Uh, not like he was like this is fucking great, but you know, <laughs> yeah. strong wording that he's using. Yeah. Um, he's talking about the manipulation of images and how Reggio's trying to challenge what it means to to see and to know things, um, which are, are two things that we think of 
you know, as human beings, offhandedly as being like our domain. Like we, we, we have the ability to see things, to know them, to understand them, right? We have logic. It's what separates us from the animals, all that kind of stuff. And uh, so he, he talks about these different um, ways in which Reggio is doing this. And he, he said something that was really kind of stuck out to me, which is that the films, and this, is, this can be hard to catch depending on if you just see them as these sort of like art film, you know, extravaganzas. But he says that Reggio takes the political as the default, and he tries to speak truth without forcing it down people's throats. And he used an analogy of a mirror, and he says using a mirror not as a way to, you know, check how you look, but to really see yourself, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, used in a, a quote from Alan Watts, which was, uh, what's the right level of magnification? So what's the right way of looking at the world? Is it through a telescope, a microscope, whatever it may be? Um, talking about the, the evolution of human perception and, and, you know, therefore of reality, how it sort of molds and changes depending on where we're from, where we are currently, where society is at uh, more generally, what the zeitgeist is, all that sort of stuff. So this idea of doing that but taking the political as the default which when you watch these movies you might not see it in that same kind of way right but i definitely you know like i said half an hour in i was like oh he's he's saying a lot here about um the nature of humanity in the the kind of modern world and industrialized society and then the second movie and sort of less industrialized kind of global south well you're seeing you're seeing the the grunt work Pawakatsi shows yeah you see shows how the life depicted in Koyaniskatsi is afforded and yeah. it's by the backbreaking labor of third world countries yeah and then in the in the last film in the Koyakatsi uh, Ramel Ross had this observation that in that film it sort of suggested that we've created another world and he says it may, maybe it's post society and we have, you know, this, uh, you know, the, the digital age or whatever you want to call it, where everyone's living more sort of virtually than literally, I guess you would yeah. say. Well, we were watching, Jensen and I were watching the last one, uh, Nikoi Katsi, and we were saying, this is pre-iPad, you know, this is pre-iPhone. Yeah. It's like, uh, this guy needs to make another one. It's called like... Uh, I think we said kamikaze. Uh, just like <laughs> this guy's having a stroke right now. Yeah, and when you watch that one, it is my least favorite of the three. But I think I like to give him credit and say it's on purpose that it looks this way. Uh, you know, I made a note that it, at times, it, because it's so the technology in it is so overdone, it kind of looks like an old Windows screensaver at some point. <laughs> like uh, pipes. Yeah, pipes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the thing is, it's like that sort of suggests everything that's been wrong. Well, in my opinion, with, uh, you know, entertainment and with uh, sort of the way the world looks since like the year 2000, where everything is oversaturated and overdone and it just it all looks so it's just a, like bad. It's a cartoon world. Yeah. And Every, everything so, looks like a fucking cartoon. So in that film, you that's what you get. Like you're in that cartoon world and you're looking at all. this Right. Stuff. And, and, and I thought about that a lot, too, with that last one. Uh, so he uses like the sort of negative uh, effect you know where it looks like you're looking at uh, negatives of photographs and and he uses a lot of original animation and a lot of times you it's hard because 
every almost every image is so technologically manipulated either through an effect of a real shot or through animation i found myself asking is this as i was watching i was like is this real and then i realized oh that's the exact (laughs) question i'm supposed to be asking is this real And, and so that sort of practical literal question of is this real you know, if you think about it for five seconds, becomes a philosophical question yeah. like, oh, like it, it, it never it, was. <laughs> right, right. Um, but something you said earlier, just a second ago, about uh, perception mm-hmm. made me think about how integral that sort of theme is with a very practical filmmaking consideration that I thought was very interesting in these movies is perspective. And and I'll be honest, the, when I started watching Koyaanisqatsi, I was the first observations I had were kind of negative because it starts with this rocket launch. And just from what I know, knew about the film coming in, I knew it was going to take a sort of critical look at, you know, industrial technology and space exploration, all that, all that stuff. Um, uh, sort of tangentially here this is july 21st yesterday july 20th was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing we did it and we did it and so there's uh it felt like a a strangely uh ripe time to uh to watch this movie anyway um so it starts with the the image of the rocket launch and i sort of made a note then it proceeds to critique industry and technology from the perspective of a spaceship kind of hypocritically like the perspective of almost almost the entire film of Koyaanisqatsi is aerial and not only aerial like fast forward like fast pace fast motion aerial which is not a real perspective or which is not a human perspective. Um, And so there's something artificial in the perspective that is used to critique artificiality in a lot of ways. I found myself thinking, it's like, okay, if life is so fast-paced and frenetic and alienating and chaotic, why do you have to speed up the film to show that? You know, and, and I found myself thinking, what uh, you know how about someone film how about someone films the director traveling all over the world to get these shots and then speed that film up and see if he doesn't come come off looking kind of frenetic and <laughs> and ridiculous like you know the mass of people look in, in that movie um but i think a lot of those concerns are kind of offset by uh the second film which is mostly in slow motion and there's a lot of close-ups on people's faces yeah and 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 you really just with koyaanisqatsi you you have to understand that this is an exaggeration meant to get you to see in a certain way which yeah. is and in an admirable way in my opinion and and he's no uh you know reggio's not blind to these Issues. I think he's very aware of the limitations of the genre he's working in. And uh, there's a an essay in this Criterion booklet. Uh, I 
think it's Scott McDonald. Is that right? Yeah, Scott McDonald, Celebration and Warning, where he says, uh, one might object that Reggio himself is using a high-tech industrial process, filmmaking, to mount his challenge to industrial society. But as he has said, quote, no immaculate conception is taking place. I see myself as a cultural kamikaze, as a Trojan horse using the coinage of the time in order to raise a question about that very coinage, end quote. So like I said, I, he seems to be very aware of the hypocrisy inherent in it. the question we've brought up a thousand times in this podcast <laughs> yeah. is can a a film a an inherently uh, technological medium critique a society that defines itself by its technology and and just by that phrasing of uh, of what he says no you can't completely but you can uh, you can make a point you know and I think that's what that perspective, like I said, I had some problems. There's some problems with it. Uh, but but he's, he's using it in full awareness of the problems, despite yeah. the fact to, to uh, emphasize something. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is that we're so obsessed with having tidy, neat solutions to things. So when someone makes something like Koya Niskazi, it's like, well, how can you critique industrialized society when you're, you know, using the tools of it, right? You're trying to dismantle the master's house with the master's tools or whatever, uh, which is a, a whole different debate if we get into that quote. But, you know, there's no easy solution to any, you know, problem of a certain size. That's why people still argue about Marx today is Marx didn't have all of the answers, right? He didn't have a, one size fits all solution for all these problems he was pointing out, but he was working toward them. Right. So, you know, I've been listening to the audiobook of Terry Eagleton's why Marx was right, mm -hmm. which I would recommend because it's Terry Eagleton, just like tearing everybody a new asshole and just like <laughs> making these great jokes about the prison industrial complex and all this stuff. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's part of, it's why these things become a discourse and there's no sort of silver bullet, right? Like he said, no immaculate conception is going to, wipe the slate clean right it's all it's got to be sort of a i don't want to use the word incremental because you get into like incrementalism but it has to be a multifaceted approach you can't just be like well why didn't your film fix all these problems right what's your solution how do we fix it it's like well we can do this and this and this and this and this and, and this I, and based on our our conversation about we had when the we watched captain fantastic i thought you would really like that quote because Reggio is like, he seems very opposed to the, despite uh, being a monk, he seems very opposed to the idea of like retreat, you know, into yeah. some sort of citadel of purity and purification. This guy, I don't think I mentioned when I was introducing him, uh, before he was a filmmaker, was he found he, uh, he founded these uh, programs to work, working with. Uh, former gang gang members like sort of troubled youth hmm. gang related violence uh and and it was actually i think it was somebody he was working with in one of those programs that brought him the Boonwell film uh and told him to watch it anyway he's he's extremely um uh, engaged which is kind of a weird buzzword in some ways but um uh, there's no sort of 
uh, retreat from society or culture. Uh, and, and I know when we sort of talked about Captain Fantastic, that was a big issue. It's like, what, you know, what's the point of having these uh, Ubermensch children uh, if they're just going to live in the woods? <laughs> yeah, live in the woods with, the, with each other, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's not doing that with these films. I mean, it's the opposite, at least for the, the first two. And, you know, you can argue it in different ways for the third one, but he's diving in head first. And whereas with films that we talked last week about how Deborah Granite goes in and finds these characters on the margins of society and, and uh, brings them toward the center and, and sort of makes us look at them and what their lives are like. In this, it's a similar kind of thing, but at least with Koya and Escazi, you're looking at sort of everyday life of sort of the, 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 the sort of mass of people, the kind of lumpen people of, that you see just walking around in the mall. And seeing sort of from these different perspectives what that kind of movement looks like on, on a global scale. I remember you mentioned, I think it was Bill Hader talking about the Thin Red Line. Yeah, which I still from, haven't found. <laughs> it's a war from God's perspective. Right. Like you were saying earlier, this is sort of everyday life from God's perspective. Yeah. You see the, the traffic going, you get like the shot in the train station where you see just like a nonstop wave of people, which is sort of you know that's what's happening and if you sat there on a bench you would sort of like watch people go by but to see it you know caught on film like that you're like jesus it just never ends does it just people constantly coming in and out Mm -hmm. yeah it's uh it reminds me it doesn't surprise me that reggio is a sort of spiritual you know religious at least I i don't know where he stands uh in in his walk but uh it doesn't surprise me that he comes from a religious background because a lot of the these themes are uh, remind me of the essay "The Spiritual Problem of Modern Man" by Carl Jung. Um, and one theme in, in a couple of these essays I've read in the uh, excellent, wonderful Criterion edition uh, sponsors <laughs> is uh, the death of individuality, which is which is something you cannot miss in Koyana Skatsi because uh, like you said, it's just masses of people. You, I mean, any, the close-ups you see are like, uh, like waitresses or like showgirls in, yeah. in Vegas and stuff, which, which again is very much uh, uh, the opposite is shown in Pawakatsi. Um where you uh, probably my favorite moment are those long close-ups where they're where they're panning across like fifteen different kids, yeah. and you can't help but just kind of smile because some of these kids have these. I just, just one girl was just like me mugging the camera. Yeah, yeah, but but some of these some of the kids have these the greatest looks on their face, like they're just kind of, like they're kind of embarrassed, but they're really curious. Anyway, it's it's a completely different yeah. set of emotions from. Koyaniskatsi. Yeah, it's a that that contrast is so crazy because in Koyaniskatsi you have, and I was keeping track of this the first time that someone looks directly into the camera. It's that like fighter pilot guy. Yeah, which which really reminded me of a Werner Herzog type thing. You know, he always shows the people that you know the the subject of his film. He always shows them just like 
very uh, artificially. Yeah. Like they'll be like holding a pic, like in uh, Into the Abyss, the one about capital punishment. Someone's brother was killed or something, and they he has a picture of his brother, and he's just like holding the picture, staring into yeah, the camera. Yeah. But that fighter pilot. Yeah, I mean, that, to me, like that a seems heroic str- shot almost. And yeah. then the next time you see somebody looking directly into the camera is the the casino ladies, waitresses, yeah. I guess, like all. But that's that's Koyana Scotzi. Yeah, that so is so is the fighter pilot. Oh, is it okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I was saying because like, you get these weird images. Whereas in in uh, Pawakatsi, you get like the children, and they you know you have this range of emotions. But in Koyana Scotzi, you have the fighter pilot, and then you have the casino ladies staring at the camera for like too long and, too the, and the long. music cuts out yeah and it sort of made me think of uh jean baudrillard's book america where he goes to like las vegas or to disney world or whatever and just talks about how america is this great land of the artificial of the the simulacrum of these things that have no reference point they're just kind of thrown at you that's um, it's also the subject of uh james howard kunstler's book the geography of nowhere who also goes to disneyland or disney world uh, is he the why America is so fucking ugly guy? <laughs> yes, uh, yes. And when you you know you think of Las Vegas, that's kind of world capital of things that should not be. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as like a city in the desert, plus it has all this other stuff that's just completely fabricated, and to have these ladies that all that I mean, you know, not to not to objectify them, but they all look like Las Vegas waitresses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just kind of have that look about them. Um, and Very, they're just staring uh, uh, at you. Yeah, they're just like really done up and just kind of yeah. artificial. Looking. And they look like, like they've done it for like thirty years, right, right? right? And so they and they're all staring at you, for, like we said, for too long. And it's sort of this weird thing of making you take notice of just how strange this whole image right. is. It, it struck me as very strange how how much time there was in between these two movies. Yeah, uh, because. There's so much in conversation with one another. It, like it seems th- those women seem even stranger when you see these sort of beautiful shots in Pawakatsi of people living in harmony with their surroundings. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, I mean, it's like a, uh, what's her name? Uh, Donna Haraway's phrase, cyborg you know, kind of starts to make a lot of sense when you see a human being in a natural environment and then you see Las Vegas. Yeah. We were, uh, yeah, Cyborg makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it's, you know, that's when the titles start to sort of come into play where you have life out of balance and you see in the friend, Colleen Ascati, how it's very much out of balance. And you that's why we have that such a hard shift from you know, the natural world to the highway and the mall and the, the mom holding her son in the television store. And they're just like staring at the screen, that sort of stuff. Um, and the explosion of the, the rocket, which my first reaction was like, holy shit, is that the challenger? But this was before that. So that wow. was a, a different oh, yeah. rocket blowing up since the challenger was in 86. Right. But it does, it is kind of spooky to think that it's kind of, kind of a premonition of that which kind of fits in with the the end title cards yeah which explain the definition and then after that they give you sort of hopey uh predictions or whatever you want to call right. them for the future um so that's that was a little spooky but you have the main meaning which is in the subtitle which is life out of balance 
but then in the that end title card it gives you the, the sort of definition and the pronunciation which is kind of a cool thing that goes through all three of the films and it gives you five different sort of ways of defining this word and it says crazy life which you know makes sense uh life la vida, and, la vida loca. <laughs> yeah living la vida loca uh two life and turmoil three uh life out of balance four life disintegrating which is an interesting thing to, to th- think about in sort of reference to the point of our show right of thinking about uh, climate change and sort of the the fall of nature right and then five the the longest one a state of life that calls for another way of living which again fits in with i think the the overall theme of of our show and sort of why we picked these and why um the dude i can't remember his name who wrote the essay in the the booklet from the criterion collection scott mcdonald no the other guy bill mckibben bill mckibben yeah <laughs> uh who who says i think the first line of that essay is how prescient talk about pressure yeah. which is a uh, you know, I think he kind of hits it on the head that he's showing us these images that are um, sort of unveiling reality a little bit and doing it in 1982. And then McKibben in that essay is also talking about how, you know, the atomic bomb was easy to rally against because it had an image that we could see. Whereas with things like climate change, it's hard to see incremental, you know, temperature increase or carbon emissions, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, but in the, the scenes in Koyaanisqatsi, we get those long shots of highways and cars and industrial agriculture and those huge electric towers with the lines between them that are hot sort dog. of... There's a hot dog scene, too. There's a hot dog like scene. Like manufacturing. Yeah, the, as, like I said, the Twinkie scene where you have a Twinkie factory. Yeah. Um, all the different ways that nature's sort of been uh, perverted or, uh, you know, quote-unquote conquered in some kind of way bent towards bent, human yeah. means yeah uh that uh, bill mckibben essay i'm sure it's available if you, if you google it or something yeah, it, it's really it's, it's very called, short but it's very yeah it's good. called geologic scale and human scale uh and this uh, criterion i believe put this edition out in 2012 so uh it's probably somewhere around then that he published it um, there's some there's some good things in this essay. I just wanted to read one short paragraph here. Again, this is from Bill McKibben's essay in the wonderful Criterion edition. Uh, <laughs> the evidence. Uh, oh, sorry. Let me back up here a little bit. Back that thing up. He's he's talking about the third film, uh, Nikoi Katsi. He says, uh, as it turns out, the regimentation we needed to fear was less the militarism that undergirds all those scenes of marching armies in the Koikatsi and more the self-imposed isolation bred by all that emerging digital power. We moved into an epoch of distraction, an epoch of distraction, and at the worst possible moment, just as the forces of ecological destruction gathered almost unstoppable momentum, just as life on Earth became far more unbalanced than ever before, the evidence of that imbalance is by now arrayed around us, if you have any idea where or how to look. For instance, since this trilogy was begun, we've lost about 40% of the sea ice in the summer Arctic. The planet looks different from outer space. You can't see it with the naked eye, but if you put a pH strip in the ocean, it comes out a different color than it would have when Koyaanisqatsi was released. Seawater has become 30% more acidic as it has absorbed carbon from the atmosphere. Mosquitoes have spread to new terrain, carrying disease with them. 
humans are on the move too, trying to escape rising seas and desiccated farms. End quote. It kind of goes back to what uh, Reggio was saying, right, about trying to um, sort of give, give us this God's eye view, right? And, and that's, you know, weirdly enough, the easiest way to see these kinds of things. It's not sort of, you know, that, that old adage of seeing is believing, right? I see it with my own two eyes. and then, Well, this is something you can't necessarily see with your own two eyes unless it's on this kind of global, you know, God view scale. <laughs> right. Uh, something I did take a little issue with in that first part of that quote uh, where he says the regimentation we needed to fear was less the militarism that undergirds all these scenes of marching armies uh, and more the self-imposed isolation bred by all that emerging digital power. I made a little note in the margins here that that's a I think I think that film uh, Nikoi Katsi suggests that that's a false distinction uh, and in a lot of ways, the point of the film is to is to show that that there is a continuum between, you know, this uh, these ones and zeros, this sort of quantifiable worldview or a worldview of quantification rather, uh, and then militaristic formation, and then uh, sort of athletic competition, especially embodied by the Olympics, and and you see it sort of. Uh, that, that sort of uh, ethic of quantification seeping ever more into sort of ever more practical daily life. Uh, and yeah. so this, this, you know, obsession with iPhones that everyone talks about is, is part of the uh, paradigm that this film is critiquing. It's not two separate issues. And I think, I, th- I really think that that's a, a major message of the film that McKibben kind of, compartmentalizes in that statement yeah and what i really liked about it is that and i'm talking about nikoi is that it ties this sort of you know uh, era epic epoch of distraction i always say that um it ties this kind of epoch of distraction to this idea of progress and specifically i think progress in the 20th century into the 21st century because progress in quotes I'm yeah sure. <laughs> yeah and so we have you know the wendelberry progress right. in quotes um but early on we get these images of like albert einstein real quick and, and all these kinds of uh, major mathematical scientific figures of the 20th century and so you have this idea that this is sort of a long line of um sort of deifying and worshiping quote-unquote progress that doesn't start with but is definitely accelerated in that time period of the the mid-20th century with things like atomic energy and stuff like that Um, and the fact that so much of the technology technological breakthroughs that happen were coming out of government programs either from like the space race or from like military applications that then get sort of converted to civilian purposes that kind of stuff um so all that stuff is tied very closely together, I think. And so in, in the film, you get that kind of, you, you get them sort of overlapping and sort of mixing together and becoming confused, which I think is, is how it is. Isn't there a shot of a naval ship that is, I guess it's people in formation, and you see the aerial view, and it says E equals MC squared? Maybe. Do you I remember that? There's I, a lot in there. That'd so. be weird if I just made that up. But uh, <laughs> I think weird, like Freudian I <laughs> thing. I can't remember uh, which film that's in. Um, but talking about but yeah, this, that makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that continuum is uh, explicitly acknowledged in that shot. Uh, 
but it makes me think weirdly about Leave No Trace and First Reformed in talking about the uh, bleeding of the military sort of bringing war home uh, and I guess the, you know the, the final film sort of means life as war uh, but in, in Leave No Trace and in First Reformed it's a sort of psychological continuum between you know that is PTSD this sort of uh, a traumatic event happens and then soldiers carry it with them for the rest of their lives uh, usually short lives and uh, in in this trilogy it, it's a little more practical you know it's less psychological you just see that it, it's not even necessarily daily life uh, with, with Einstein and, and figures like that it's it's like academic it's like worse it's like you're supposed to know better uh, you see the continuum between uh, the academic world and or the complicity of the academic world with these uh, atrocities human rights violations uh, anyway that's that can yeah, that work crimes be. right because you know it's uh, Einstein's breakthroughs that go toward making the atomic bomb right and the, the right. famous quote about it was, was uh, Robert Oppenheimer saying you know, I've become death destroyer of worlds, right? Did you read the, that? Uh, I can't, I can't remember if it's McDonald or McKibben in one of these essays, they specifically reference that, yeah. which is from the, the Bhagavad, Bhagavad Gita. Gita. Yeah. yeah. And so you have this, that's a weird sort of, um, you know, Reggio esque sort of thing of bringing together this sort of Eastern and Western tradition and talking about this massive sort of world engulfing thing. Um, but you have Oppenheimer saying that, and that's you know the the thing that's quoted all the time. But you know Oppenheimer is a, is a scientist. He's not a warrior. He's not a general. He's a physicist, right? So uh, the fact and that Einstein was completely opposed to war. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, didn't he have that quote about like I know not what war means World War Three will be fought with, but World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. I, I don't remember, but I, I used to have like I think I used to have a poster of Einstein saying uh, you know war is murder uh, <laughs> essentially it was a little more eloquent than that but yeah and, and it makes me think of another idea we've brought up several times and I think it's from Wendell Berry about the difference between a sort of position and effective action and that's sort of the reverse of that you know a lot of people have the right position uh, but they don't take any action and it's like Einstein's findings discoveries led to action yeah. even though a, a, a terrible action even though he had the right sort of theoretical position yeah and it kind of you know even all the teams of scientists that were brought together to you know construct the the bomb um you kind of think about their their intention right you think about whether or not you know are they doing this because they're thinking well you know these are breakthroughs we can used to do all these other great things so if we make this bomb then they'll let us do what we really want to do or you know i'm sure there are plenty of them that it was just a a matter of patriotism and this is what you know if we're going to survive this is what we need to do as a country because if we don't do it then the nazis are going to build one or the japanese are going to build one whatever um a lot of a lot of hitler images in these at, yeah. least, at least the last one yeah a lot of 
sort of uh, something that I remember from the last one, Nikoi Akatsi, is the Hall of Presidents, the Wax Presidents. Fucking Trump. Yeah. Out of nowhere. It's weird, man. It, it is. It, 2002. And it might just be that he's using so many images that he just kind of like hit on a couple of things, but they do seem weirdly on point, weirdly prescient. Right? Yeah. Um, something I wanted to talk about to get back to the the naming because I think that is such an interesting idea of you know trying to give a word a thousand images. I um, you watch that interview, you will fucking love it. But the Poikatsi sort of caught my eye because the the card at the end that gives you the definition gives you a weird way of defining it um so the definition it gives and, and remember the subtitle of that one is life in transformation which is sort of a reference to the global south and we see the transformation from this kind of being more in harmony with nature to industry and and all the sort of stuff that we would call progress creeping in um but this is an entity, a way of life that consumes the life forces of other beings in order to further its own life. And then the, the one that caught my eye was life sorcerer. It comes from the two Hopi words, so katsi meaning life, and then I guess uh, pawak meaning sorcerer. So it's just sort of a weird kind of like hmm. D&D image that he had. <laughs> but then the other one was a parasitic way of life, which hmm. is it's sort of interesting to think about. And, you know, maybe making reference to, you know, the to think about it in more simplified terms like the global north infecting the global south being parasitic like you're saying like taking advantage of them for uh, labor and raw materials all this sort of stuff um weirdly it made me think about i think we mentioned it in introducing avatar it made me think about titanic and rose's relationship to jack that uh zizek talks about you know the sort of uh, upper class's relationship to the lower class as a sort of siphoning of vitality. Yeah. And and that's that on a much bigger scale, that's kind of what you see in Pawakatsu is the first world siphoning the literal sort of physical vitality of the third world, so called. Yeah, and you know, which is literally what happened in world history is Imperial powers siphoning the vitality and the wealth away from these these yeah, countries. Uh, yeah, Sif- and siphoning is, is is sort of a metaphor and a polite term in a way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very vampiric, right? Very parasitic, which makes the, the term uh, kind of fit better. I have to say that in uh, Koya Nascazzi, the dem- demolition montage, I kept like making notes of these dif- different kind of montages that would pop up. And there's the demolition montage where you have them like, what looked like project buildings, like housing projects being demolished. And I have to say that the soundtrack that's playing during that montage is the closest approximation to what my anxiety sounds like. <laughs> it's just sort of, and especially, I don't know what it was about that first one, but something about the music in that uh, just sort of like, at times I was like, I was like, maybe I should turn this down or like pause it for a second. Cause it's sort of overwhelming. At yeah. Points. Yeah. And and it's uh, some of the images are so kinetic or frenetic or whatever that it's a little bit like I thought I was going to have a fucking seizure. Yeah, it's it's um, pretty. It can be intense at times, um, which I think is part of where the movie gets a. I think it has kind of a, a cult status as like a good movie to like do drugs and watch. Mm. Um, that's one of the Simpsons jokes Trip, is, trippy. is Otto's going to take mushrooms and watch it but he ends up just like staring at a field <laughs> what happens in a meadow at dusk 
nothing, everything. Yeah, it's uh, I I could definitely see some uh, influence, see the influence this movie had on uh, some non-traditional filmmakers, especially Terrence Malick, who uses that sort of yeah. fast motion in. I guess it's Tree of Life. Anyway, I I know I've seen in a Terrence Malick film that sort of fast sped up motion, and. And especially in the Tree of Life, the sort of uh, natural scenes, that's a whole montage of like the creation of the earth. Uh, I was reminded of watching these films. Yeah. And it, it does have, at least the first two, maybe not Nikoya Katsi as much, but it has this kind of cinema verite feeling to it, right? This kind of uh, showing you what reality is like um, because it is just, you know, almost like, well, not found footage, maybe. The first film feels a little bit more like that, but in the second film, because you have so many more shots where people are aware that the camera's there, mm-hmm. or at least are letting you know that they're aware that the camera's there, it feels maybe a little bit more uh, staged. But all, like we're saying, all that kind of fades away with the last film, which is more like computer generated and a little bit more hectic. You know, hard to look at. We were sort of, you know, we're kind of picking up on a little bit of hypocrisy. That I, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, maybe this sounds cheesy, but it reminds me of what we said about the ending of Fern Gully and the necessity of... Uh, what What's the bad guy's name? Hexon? Hexus. Hexus. Hexon Valdez. Hexus. And we sort of said that film says the solution is to fly right into the belly of the beast and, and destroy it from within. So I think there's a way to think about what Reggio's doing here, using the tools of, uh, you know, the sort of hexus of modernity or whatever he's critiquing, post-modernity. Uh, the puppy society. Right. Uh, as him sort of flying right into the belly of that monster and trying to destroy it from within. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, and you know, go back to what I was saying about uh, Nikoi Katsi earlier. It does kind of, it just looks like everything that I remember and love and hate about the 2000s, about the aughts. It just has that, it's just like, it's so of that moment that it makes me just like sick to look at it. Did, did you say, I can't remember if you said on while we were recording that it looks like a screensaver. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think we mentioned that. But yeah, at, at times it does. And then there are these scenes like, there's the one where you're, you're kind of flipping through channels, but it's sort of like the tracking's off, so you're just kind of moving up through, and there's like a static barrier, and mm. you get like, here's a shot of a TV, or like a talk show, and here's like a shot of a porno, and then here's a shot yeah. of like a war. Um, right. And, and so in a lot of ways, you're getting these images, and it's sort of, that's how people see the world and have for, you know, a long time, for decades. Um, but now it's, you know, because of you know most people getting their news through like twitter or whatever it may be it's it's even more prevalent and there are even more images that you take in and like terabytes of information that you're soaking up something i thought about watching especially in in sort of contrasting Pawakatsi and nakoi nakoi was all the sort of um artificial digital images in nakoi and all the very sort of visceral, physical, you know, there's a lot of like emphasis in uh, Pawakatsi on 
the workers like physical bodies their muscles uh, everything's wet yeah uh something a very sort of visceral immediate physical material shots and um the opposite in in the last film it made me think about how much of like everyone's day in 2019 and for the last however long 20 years uh, how much of our days are dominated by things that if the power went out and did not come back on would not exist you know what i'm saying uh like how much of your self your personal sort of like like where you get your meaning comes from things that if the power went out would not exist like and maybe that's i don't know how that sounds but i think about that kind of thing a lot like how much of my life is dominated by the moment as opposed to like things that have been real for ever yeah what i would say now it's not even if the power went out it's what if your internet went out yeah it's not the your wi-fi yeah if, if your wi-fi goes out yeah um and yeah it's it's it makes me think of the uh the william volman carbon ideologies where he you know he's writing to the person in the future and he says in my day i could get up and turn and flip a light switch and the light would come on to you that must sound like magic <laughs> and it's just kind of it, yeah that sounds like something you'd write to someone in the past as opposed yeah, to the future but it, now we're starting to think about it in a more kind of cyclical way right a little uh Battlestar Galactica <laughs> style, just like looping. I don't get that reference, and I'm proud. <laughs> well, I I don't like the series, and I definitely don't like the ending. But that's the reference I went with. It's the okay. only one I could think of. Um, Speaking of references, have I mentioned the Interstellar thing on since no, we've been recording? No. It's weird how we sort of have a microcosm of the conversation you hear before we start recording yeah or is it like something it's, we mentioned days ago and it's right. like have we said that yeah, it's yeah. very confusing anyway maybe i'm crazy but i invite any and all listeners to watch and listen to the final scene of koyana Skatsi with the exploding rocket uh, listen to the music and then watch the infamous docking scene from interstellar which you're docking <laughs> which we uh, which we Dick addressed docking. i believe <laughs> sorry dick Dawkins. this is a really good point you're making i didn't mean to interrupt uh, it's it. not it's not a great point it's just like uh well, something I, I can't remember I, I don't know if it's real or not but the music in the final scene of koyanis katsi and the docking scene uh in the Hans Zimmer score of Interstellar, especially starting about two minutes into that track, is to me sounds very, very similar. similar. Yeah, and it has a that kind of epicness that you expect of a, a scene like that. Yeah, and, you know, and it's because it's you know spacecraft and similar kind of sounding things. That even if it's not musically similar, it does sort of line up in your head when you hear it you're like yeah. oh wow yeah i could see that being but i mean the whole i was watching that scene i was like where uh, in koyanis katsi and i was like where have i heard this before and i was uh, i just thought of it 
And I like I like I said I've li- I've watched it a few times and I I still can't tell if I'm crazy, like well, if it's the same thing. I mean, or when not. you played it, it, it sounded close enough to where yeah. it like makes sense to to connect them. Okay. Good. Um, but yeah, it's sort of. But again, because these are very different kinds of, again, narrative's not the right word, but different kinds of narrative adjacent things. Um, in Interstellar, it's big and epic and dramatic. But then it's a it's it's a success, right? Well, uh, I guess the the problem I have is if it's conscious, like if if that's a conscious uh, incorporation of that tone. Why I'm, would you? Why would you do that? But I'm telling you, I'm troubled by that article you read, or where you said there's some sort of award given out for like environmentally conscious films, and Interstellar yeah, won Interstellar it. Won. Yeah. It's like. Just because it acknowledged climate change, which is absurd. It's like, it's like uh, Obama getting the Peace Prize. <laughs> or, you know, most people getting the Peace Prize, to be fair. Uh, maybe not Malala. I don't know if we can really oh, you know she's, fault her for getting shot by the Taliban. You know she's up to no good, really. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, that was a joke. <laughs> we support Malala. Oh no! I didn't. I stopped because I forgot what I was going to say. Moana. <laughs> we support Moana. <laughs> M- Melania Yusuf say. Um, oh man! So let me see what else I have here because, they, like I said, I took a, a ass ton of notes here. Ass ton. One metric ass ton. Um, I did think, uh, or, you know, I was paying. I was trying to pay attention because, again, this is. Uh, quote-unquote non-narrative film so i'm trying to pay attention to the interconnection of the visuals with the music with the editing and all that sort of stuff that like in a normal movie you should also pay attention to but because there's like people talking or or doing it or whatever you you might let your attention slip uh, but i did notice in in poikazi there's this kind of weird inversion where you have uh in koyanaskazi I think we're getting really good at saying these names. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but in Koya Niskati, you have, uh, the like I said, the kind of intrusion of humanity, and you get the big, like, thresher machines or whatever, and that's kind of accompanied by this music that's not that ominous, but you can tell there's, like, a little bit of a different kind of edge to it when it starts playing. Whereas in, in Poikazi, you have the uh, agriculture that's being shown that is a more kind of, like, you know, in tune with the land, you get like terrace farming and these older ways, like hand plowing a field and stuff like that. And it's accompanied by this music that's almost triumphant. And I think I made a note that it kind of reminded me of like some solo David Byrne stuff that's sort of like uh, kind of dancey and hopeful sounding in, in a way. Um, and I just thought that was a, it was an interesting thing because there's, like we we're saying, there's a very clear line being drawn between industrialized, mass produced sort of destructive society this society out of balance that we talk about with the uh, Nascati um as as compared to Pawakatsi and how all those ways of being in the world and sort of uh working within the world um are, are kind of valorized in, in a lot of ways so we actually the people in Pawakatsi like you're saying like the children are more humanized we sort of see them we feel even though we're, they're not characters, I wouldn't call them that. We feel kind of closer to them. We we see their individuality. Yeah, whereas in in Nascati, it's the opposite. It's sort of like people are like roaches or whatever. Not not to like 
not shown in that negative of a light, but then the way that they're sort of moving around, it's sort of uh, given a kind of Attenborough-esque, like, look at this anthill well, kind and, of and that's what I think that's what McKibben is referring to in his title of that essay, Geologic Scale and Human Scale. And you yeah. see in Koyaanisqatsi, you have mostly a geologic scale. And even in the close-ups of the pilot and the uh, Vegas women, it's it's not really human because what's emphasized is these sort of these personas, these sort of yeah, these sort of uh, shapes that they are fitting themselves into. Yeah, like I couldn't tell you. Like I watched the film and I, I stared at this fighter pilot for a long time. I have no idea what color his hair is. <laughs> right. I don't remember if he was wearing glasses or not. Like I don't. I don't have right. that, kind of, but I remember more. You got like the sort the of kids. archetype of it, yeah. But like the kids' faces, I remember like the last kid you see had like giant front teeth, and like I remember that because I spend. It's not that you spend more time with them, but you sort of you feel more of a kind of quote unquote human connection with them. Right. When you look at them. Right. They're more, I guess, relatable in a way, like em- empathetic. And and that's just a result of the way it's filmed, yeah. and that's. Something, it, it, in a weird way, it reminds me of David Foster Wallace's unfinished final novel, uh, The Pale King, which is about a uh, an IRS sort of bureaucrat in some ways. It's Like I said, it's unfinished, so it's not really clear ex- exactly what it's about. But in a way, that book is kind of about, imagine the, you know, the shots of in Koyaanisqatsi of all these sort of faceless like you say sort of almost roaches uh, scuttling about on the face of the planet and it, and that book in a way is sort of like a zoom in on one of those sort of boring balding suits um, and really trying to inhabit uh, the perspective the, the human perspective of this roach Um which I think is an admirable project. Uh, anyway, yeah, I really can't emphasize perspective enough in in thinking about these films. I think it's it's a huge consideration. And one uh, again, I was a little skeptical, but after listening to some interviews with uh, Reggio, I think I think it's a, a consideration that is uh, fully considered. He's he seems a very authoritative and articulate um, artist. He, he knows what he's doing and he he does he works very deliberately. It, it was so refreshing in this interview to hear an artist sort of say what his film was. You know, you always hear people say I want to I wanted to raise more questions than I answered. And I'm like, <laughs> the questions have been fucking raised. It's like, like let's answer them. Uh, yeah. And he's, he seems, he knows what he's doing. And he sort of authoritatively says, this is what I was trying to do. Yeah. Um, which is something that, I don't know if I've ever seen that, but there's a, an interview that was with Paul Schrader and Ethan Hawke where they're talking about First Reformed. And Schrader kind of does that too, where he, he just gives like these long answers about like, here's exactly what I wanted to right. try to do. The, the only time he doesn't is with the end where he sort of says, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but uh, but I, I kind of doubt that. Yeah, he, he's got, I mean, no one creates anything really with an ending and doesn't have some sort of like conception of how they want it to be interpreted. 
right um, or, or at least at least a feeling of what it means if, yeah. not, if not a vocabulary to sort of explicitly express yeah logically something, something what it means there's at least a feeling yeah you know but you know this idea of a geologic scale and a human scale makes me think of uh, the concept of like deep time yeah which is you know and, and people in general and I'm you know I'm not trying to put the human race down for this because I think it's true of everyone we have trouble looking at everything from a geologic scale we have trouble looking at deep time right um, I, you, you might remember when we had uh, the class uh, post-colonial, post-colonial criticism. criticism yep I'm already um, there um, at one point uh, Dr. White asks does anybody know has anybody heard of what deep time is and I was like, well, I know that it's terrifying. <laughs> uh, because I, I know it's a porno. <laughs> deep time. It's deep time. Um, God. Uh, <laughs> the sequel to Deep Impact. Uh, but Deep Throat. <laughs> we'll just keep going for a while. Uh, but, you know, deep time, this idea that they're of looking at time beyond a human scale, uh, not just beyond the lifespan of you as an individual human being, but of... of potentially humanity as a species that sort of thing and it's incredibly hard for people to do i mean even it's not like i do it really i still think about like tomorrow i have to go do this or next week i have to do this whatever it may be um so it's difficult to look at time from that scale and then to think about and let alone to care about it. yeah that's kind of where i was going next and to think about like where or what can i do to benefit the people coming after me not just like the next generation or my kids or my grandkids but you know people generations from now like somebody living in you know 2280 like what can i do for them someone living in 2500 but and that's and that's so in some ways such an idealistic and absurd notion because so many people i mean not only do we have problem doing you know treating our neighbor yeah we can't do it in the now as alone in the as if we you know treating others as as we want to be treated we can't treat ourselves how we want to be treated let alone some sort of theoretical human in the distant future um so it's like yeah yeah i don't know uh double cheeseburger tastes good right i'm gonna eat it right now because Mm -hmm. it's gonna make me happy right um you, without you know considering any of the the ramifications, not that you know eating a double cheeseburger is the worst sin you can commit, right. but that's um, and there, and there's also I, I I don't know how this might take us on a on a weird tangent, but I remember coming across I wish I could remember the uh, scholar's name, but I was doing a project on. Sarah, jo- Sarah Orne Jewett and coming across uh, some thoughts on uh, from a uh, in queer theory about environmentalism and how emphatic it is about children and future generations and, yeah. and, and this guy just goes on a sort of rant in this scholarly text uh, and he basically says like fuck the children uh, <laughs> fuck them kids yeah and, and how uh heteronormative that oh definitely yeah. sort of imperative is um and so to to be thinking not not just about 
you know, your grand, your children's children or your children's children's children um, in, in deep time, you're thinking about your children's children's to the 12th degree or whatever. Um, yeah. And, and just how, how many assumptions about heteronormativity that is making. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really have anything to say about that other than to say there is a, a sort of segment of kind of queer theorists that are taking exception to that sort of, I guess, futurity is, is a word that gets used a lot and just like, like placing all your hopes in the future. Yeah. Uh, and it, it gets at something that I, I brought up forever ago. I think at this point, I think I brought it up, which was a uh, Donna Haraway and her uh, keeping with the trouble. Something that she's got a lot of uh, kind of criticism for is the whole, uh, section of the book where she says you should make kin not babies and her idea is that you create these kinship networks outside of the traditional blood related family structure and you let that not necessarily be a substitute but uh, to be the way that you sort of form relationships in the world um, and in doing so you you know can potentially curb overpopulation or you can you know, uh, expand your ability to care beyond just your familial blood related unit, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and there's all sorts of criticisms that you could levy against that. One of them being that it just sounds weird. Like to be the average person here is, you know, don't have kids instead be better friends with people you aren't related to by blood. They're like, well, wow, that's weird. Why would I do that? Yeah. Don't have babies, Um, have a pet. Yeah, yeah, even (laughs) that, you know, make make kin with make odd kin with, you know, things that aren't necessarily human, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that's that's part of Haraway's. Yeah, she's very into, you know, companion species and all that sort of Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, You know, but it's a it's an interesting thing to think about. And, And when you when people do say, you know, we have to make a better world for our grandchildren, that is very heteronormative. Right. You're assuming that everyone's going to. But it's also have real. Children in a specific kind of way. It's right? also real. It's very. It's practical. People are it, going yeah, to have it, children. It is kind of a mass appeal, right? I mean, right. you're you're gonna connect with more people than you're going to alienate when you say something like that, right? Um, so, doesn't necessarily ring true for everyone, but for most people, they're gonna hear that and be like, "Yeah, I do want my grandkids to have a better world." But, but I think there's probably a way to say that without alienating people and without. You, you know, to say it with awareness that this is, this is not how it has to be. It's how, it makes me think of First Reformed and how kind of clear-eyed it seems about like, yeah, people are going to fall in love and have babies uh, and should because that is a timeless, I mean, that's that's part of Endless being love. human and, and, and that's not, and that's not to say you're not a human if you don't fall in love and have babies, uh, but it is a it's it's a track that it, you can it follow is a, as a human being. it is one yeah it's one one part of being human. Uh, so yeah, you can't you can't dismiss it. Sort of one way of being human. But you, right? yeah, but you but you do have to be aware that that is not everything. Yeah. Um, so, and and to be willing to work outside of that that immediate framework if you want to make any sort of substantial change um you know we've had a lot of a lot of the films we've watched fall back on that kind of family 
connection, family unity. I mean, like Captain Fantastic, Leave well, No Trace. And, and the whole theme that we keep mentioning of telling the truth to children yeah. is in a lot of ways about future generations of children. And you've yeah. mentioned what's the what's the sort of climate uh, change activism, youth activism group? Oh, Sunrise Movement. Right. Uh, which is very much in keeping with that. And we talked about how Captain Fantastic and Leave No Trace are created by these uh, writers, or, or Matt Ross, the filmmaker, and Peter Rock, the writer of My Abandonment, sort of confronting uh, the idea of, of raising a child. So, so it's it's integral to this to the issue of climate change, but it's not uh, a complete picture of it either, because people of all shapes and sizes and creeds are dealing with climate change who either physically can't or don't want to reproduce for whatever reason. Um, so it's still a concern for everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just, it makes me think of like something I think about occasionally is the uh, American fetish, fetishization of the family which is a weird word to say, a lot of Fs in there. Uh, but, you know, in America, we have this foundational thing that we we love families, right? As Americans, like, that's the sort of the unit that is most priced, right? You get tax breaks when you get married, when you have kids, that you get rewarded, all that sort of stuff. And then uh, that in contrast with, um, you know, separating families at the border, detaining children separate from their parents, uh, all this sort of stuff. Uh, horrible shit that's going on uh, in the concentration camps on the border it just sort of uh, really shines a light at how the family unit which is you know I, I agree with you it's meaningful it's going to be meaningful going forward as long as people are having new people it's going to be an important sort of structure that you have to factor into your calculus when you're trying to think about the future um, but it's also you know to to go back to uh, I forgot his name Ramel Ross saying it you know taking the political as the default, right? If you take the political as the default and thinking about the family, then you arrive at this idea that at least in the United States, we are maybe the world's biggest hypocrites when it comes to supporting, you know, the family structure, right? Um, maybe I'll tie this into the movies at some point, but right now I'm just kind of ranting. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think about this a lot of like, that's sort of presented to you when you're a child in America as being the dream of having a family, creating your own family, build a family unit, buy a house for your family, a family home, right, is what it's called. Even in legal documents, you have to, you know, you have the, the marriage home or the family home or whatever. And then to see that that when it comes down to it and kind of the 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 fascist rubber meets the fascist road, it, <laughs> it, that doesn't really matter anymore, right? Or at least, you know, for people that yeah, because weren't born here and aren't yeah, white. You, you look at goddamn fucking trump and you look at his the rhetoric about i mean i mean how he appeals to sort of evangelical sort of traditionally minded people and then because it's not i'm gonna rant here myself it's not about family it's about american families and that is i i want to explode when i think about this and it's to me it's just the most glaring a human rights violation and it's and not just trump but the way people think 
about, and especially Christians, which to me just makes it especially egregious, the way they think about, the way they categorize people, that there there is some sort of moral difference between an American and anyone else makes me want to scream my fucking head off. I, I don't understand what's going on in people's heads if if you can make a moral distinction based on arbitrary differences created by nations and ethnicities. Uh, I'm not saying anything revolutionary here. I no. I mean, this is so, so run-of-the-mill, but it's so pervasive that it, I mean, it just drives me fucking yeah, crazy. You know, hashtag not all Christians, but a lot of them, enough of them that they're a, a national base of power. No, I, yeah, I, we're th- I'm thinking about sort of fundamentalist, and not just fundamentalist. This is uh, mostly sort of evangelical. Uh, and, and again, we're in the fucking Bible belt here, so yeah, yeah. maybe maybe our church across the street just built an addition that's bigger than the original building. If that tells you anything, <laughs> the the Pentecostals over there, yeah. But yeah, it's just like, all the stuff that happened recently. The newest thing is the uh, send send them back chant, um, <sighs> which is stupid. For I mean, you have to. Everyone starts off by saying, "Well, you know, all but one of them is born in America, right?" He's talking about AOC and Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilhan Omar and uh, fourth one whose name I can't remember for some reason. Um, is saying, you know, send them all back. Well. You know, Omar is the only one that was born here, but she's legally a citizen. She came through legal means, which is what they always bitch and moan about. Why don't they just come here legally? Um, And so to me so far, this is sort of like the most egregiously like, you know, to to beat a dead horse. But it's the only word that really fits fascist thing that's happened. Right. Of uh, even being American by the laws of the Constitution is now not enough. You know, also have to you have to look white. Well, you have to look white, and also you have to sort of, uh, you know, uh, you have to have the right thoughts, right? You can't, yet you can't be, uh, you can't be convicted of, of wrong think, right? To make another 1984 reference, um, you have to buy into the their vision, their vision of America, meaning like far right wing, hyper patriotic people, um, and uh, you can't level any criticism that's different from their criticism or therefore you hate America and you don't want I'm, us to have freedom and you don't want us to be happy. I'm about, you don't want us to drive four wheelers and eat slim gyms and drink Bud Light. And all I'm about fucking sick of the word patriotism. I, I don't understand. I'm sick of the word freedom. I've been sick of the word freedom since 2002. I fucking hate <laughs> the word freedom. I don't know what it means. The word patriotism. If it's not a sort of, pseudo word it's it's a commercial for nationalism it's a gloss over it the real sort of connotation which is i mean i just just think about the phrase god bless america that's so patriotic that is a sort of exclusionary if that's a word exclusive excluding phrase it's sort of framed as a positive thing god bless america but what it what that really means is like god only bless america god bless america in relation to other countries which is 
crazy and illogical. Yeah. And you can't, and again, you can't use logic to combat this stuff because it's so hypocritical and highly illogical. But that's that phrase is like a perfect encapsulation of everything that shouldn't fit in with the way that you know the the country is structured. I mean, you always go back to the separation of church and state, which has sort of been a joke from the beginning. But uh, you know, if if that's in place, then just that phrase is just sort of useless meaningless in a lot of yeah. different ways unless it's for the sort of symbolic value which is all anything's for anymore it's all performance it's all optics it's all like how american can you appear to be right um ilan omar wears a job that doesn't jive with being american therefore she cannot be a true american right no true American would wear a job right and you hear it man I've heard it especially around uh, with rhetoric surrounding Colin Kaepernick and I don't want to get off you know I don't want to that's a whole other that's a whole different thing fucking but thing. It, to me the biggest problem with that is like no one's talking about how this whole conversation is mediated through fucking Nike yeah you know like anyway uh, I don't know how we cut off on this. No, but I think it I think it does kind of fit back in with this because all three of these films are about the way that we experience the world, right? And they, and, and not just go out and sort of experience the world, but literally from like a, a physiological standpoint, how we see and sort of what we spend in the what world. we spend our time doing, like I was saying about the power outage scenario. Yeah. How we literally spend our lives. So the question of, is this real? Well, you, right. you could look out your window at any given time and be like, is this real? It's sort of like a Curtis and take shelter when he's seeing the bird. Is anybody else seeing this? Seeing this? Uh, um, I think one of the biggest uh, or the best parts of these movies is just, like we said, we're, we're, we're both kind of nervous about having anything to say, which is kind of ironic. It feels like we've been talking forever, but they really cause you to reflect on because you're not caught up in like a specific sort of human interest narrative in these films. There's time you can sort of take in the the images and reflect uh, while you do it. And one of the things I kept thinking about because so much, you know, so much of these movies is about technology and it, it, I think it was specifically the hot dog scene. Uh, You're talking yeah. about the scene in uh, the thong song video where the mustard comes off the end of the hot dog and then you have the. That's exactly what we're talking right? about. I, I non sequitured into Cisco. Uh, no. So there's just a, a scene where you're seeing hot dogs being mass produced on an assembly line. And it weirdly, it, it made me think about, I guess not that weirdly. It made me think about, Okja and how uh, you know that movie is kind of trying to make us see how distanced we are from food production and it made me think that how technology is really a tool for distancing ourselves from reality so Again, I'm going to go back to Ernest Becker, The Denial of Death. We are so fucking scared of the truth of our situation here, which is that we are creatures, organic creatures who will die, who will decay and die. And even more to the point, 
we live by death. You know, we kill things and eat them to survive. Or sometimes just, just to kill them. Or sometimes just to fucking kill them. And we were talking about maybe doing uh, Ace Ventura 2, When Nature Calls. And I love the scene where the the guy leads him into his uh, trophy room. He says, something wrong, Mr. Ventura? Of course not. This is a lovely room of death. <laughs> uh, anyway, the the observation I had was that Technology is is in a lot of ways a a tool for distancing ourselves from the reality that we survive and thrive on the death and subsequent consumption of other life, and how really in in kind of primitive cultures in quotes primitive cultures the reverence and a lot of the mythology of those cultures comes from the lack of technology and the immediacy of the reality that their sustenance is other living creatures and how technology therefore is the death of reverence like people appreciate these like i said in quotes primitive cultures appreciated and built mythologies around the animals that they necessarily killed and ate because they could not avoid that sort of primal confrontation where they you know the hunt yeah and and how in a 2019 society first world society we we can't hardly imagine that scene which is still real of course Um, but we're so distanced because technology has gotten so sophisticated and so good at distancing us from that scene. And yet it's a denial. It's that, uh, that is why there's, uh, it's, it's very difficult to have reverence or, or any sort of sense of anything sacred because, because we have removed ourselves from the sort of tragic, as this sounds so cliche, I understand, but the sort of tragic essence of the means by which we live, yeah. uh, and, and and like I said, that is the real to me the real power of these films is is to make you think about that kind of shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of it, it, this is related, but but also kind of a tangent. It <clears throat> makes me think of how islamophobic people are always really freaked out by the idea of halal food and they're like oh it's been you know it's been slaughtered in the name of allah so how can i eat it that sort of stuff um, which again is like not that different from what's happening in like kosher food and most food is like certified kosher um well, made this probably generalization but you know a halal butcher will have to they take the animal they literally say a prayer to the animal for the animal they bless it in the name of god they kill it in the name of god right with a lot of respect and relevance um and it's still a violent act where they they don't you don't chop the animal's head off you have to cut its throat and that's how you kill it it's a very like hands-on and respectful process right and it's been industrialized to a certain extent but you take that and you compare it to something you'd see in like food ink of some dude like you know anton sugaring a bunch of cows like in a line and like has a blank expression on his face and is just going about it right it's it's a very different 
right and it's it's, the, it's confronting what you're talking about right. more directly that sort of idea that like this is the way in which we live is gaining sustenance from these things that die and we too must die and all yeah this it's like we don't have just the existence of that sort of mythology surrounding that necessity yeah shows that there is at least some indirect as it may be at least some acknowledgement of what's going what's really happening and we don't really have that mythology uh or 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 the mythology is the mythology is that there is no mythology you know there's uh we're just trying to distance ourselves from it as much as we can and succeeding mostly yeah what's the what's the things like good food good meat good god let's eat good food good meat good god let's <laughs> that eat. kind of thing you're talking about technology and like um trying to remember what exactly it was you were saying about uh technology affecting the way that we experience reality and sort of shrouding reality kind of like i, can't remember. I, I was you mean what i was just saying yeah. about distancing us from the uh, reality. I, I guess I was talking about food production. The yeah, but I was thinking about it in a more general way, and specifically because um, I I got glasses for the first time in my life at age thirty, which is weird, <laughs> and it made me think of I heart Huckabees. If there's glass between there's us. glass between us, and you're talking about technology, and and glasses are a prosthetic technology, oh, yeah. right? What were we talking? Was that last week? Yeah. We talking about that? yeah, and and so it's sort of it it has sort of affected the way that I think about reality because. I've gone 30 years and never worn glasses. Didn't think I would need, like I knew my distance vision was getting kind of bad. And so I get them at the place and I put them on in the car and I look around and it's just like, everything's clear. And I was like, Oh, it, and my first thought was, this is like the difference between HDTV and standard depth. And then I was thinking that's the completely wrong analogy to be using. Right. Cause this is, that technology is based on what I'm experiencing, right. this phenomenon of right. vision that I'm experiencing. Um, so it, it was just like, a, it's an interesting thing that I keep thinking about of like the way I experience reality is based on whether or not I have this contraption on my face. And if right. I don't, then it's slightly different. And so it's just, uh, have I missed things? Does it really matter that much how I experiencing, how I experience them? Right. And even if you had the best glasses in the world or the best vision in the world, you still can't be sure that. And it still doesn't make man the measure of reality. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. Two eyes are not perfectly discerning reality. You're just perfectly discerning human reality. Yeah. Or just like if you're somewhere with someone and you're like, hey, do you smell that? And they're like, no, I don't smell anything. That's like such a big difference in how you're experiencing the right. world at that point. Um, but yeah, anyway, Katsi trilogy. Are we done? Pretty cool, I guess. Yeah. I'm about to piss my pants. Okay, so let me just run through this real <laughs> fast. Uh, we're available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and now on Stitcher. So if you want us through Stitcher, you can get us there. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. Next week, we'll be doing something a little bit different, but a film that we're both huge fans of. And again, it's one that when we picked it uh, before the show, we were like, maybe we'll have trouble fitting it in, but I think like once we watch it, we'll be, we'll be fine. And yeah. it's. Uh, Spike Jones's almost at Spike Lee. Spike Jones's uh, her from twenty thirteen. Yeah. Um, so her great film. Um, can't wait to talk about it. See it again. Yeah. And uh, Will's gonna go piss now. So. Yeah. If anyone's listening or interested, I recommend rewatching her, but also reading the 
uh, Curtis White uh, analysis in his book We Robots, which is yeah, fucking spot W-E-E, on. W-E-E, Tiny Robots. We Little Robots. We Little Robots. Uh-huh. Yes. Anyway. We, W-E, comma, robots. Oh, yeah. I forgot to see. Uh,